Let's go ahead and open. I want to try to finish up chapter 14 today. We've got four verses, but I want you to open up to an Old Testament prophet, Joel, the prophet Joel. Turn to Joel chapter 3. We're going to start looking at verse 9. Last week we looked at the... Snapshot of reaping, the fourth of four snapshots there in Revelation 14, the victory campaign, the great war between the woman and the dragon, man child, and the forces of Satan throughout history. And that snapshot of reaping involves the Son of Man harvesting on the earth, and then a mighty angel with a sickle harvesting. In the earth, or the vintage of the earth. We talked about the harvest versus the vintage. And we looked at the harvest here based upon comparing Scripture with Scripture as a subtle reference to what John prefigures in chapter 4, verse 1, and what Paul talks about in detail. The harvest there, verses uh, uh, 15 and 16, um, or is that verse, verses 14 through 16? is a subtle reference to the rapture of the church that takes place just prior to the beginning of the tribulation. And then we go into the reaping or the vintage, the harvest of the grapes, which is Armageddon or the judgment, reaping for judgment at the end of the tribulation. So these two events mentioned here sandwich, uh, they sandwich Daniel's, Daniel's 70 weeks. So we looked last week at the harvest, the son of man on the cloud with the sharp sickle. We looked at the parable of the wheat and the tares. And we see that this harvest where there is no indication of wrath or judgment like there is with the vintage is a reference to the great harvest of the saints who are in heaven in Revelation 4 and 5. They're in heaven. Now we get into the vintage. And I want to look at the the prophet Joel. Verses, chapter 3, verses 9 through 16. When the book of Revelation writes or speaks or describes, it's not just some new thing. It's not just, well, this is apocalyptic literature and John is writing strange things we cannot understand and maybe it was the Apostle John, maybe it wasn't, some new thing. No, these things have already been declared in the Old Testament. The book of Revelation is just an expository commentary on what's already been written. There's nothing new. When you take the Hebrew context out of the Scriptures, when you forget that God was the God of Israel, that He used the Jews to reveal His Word, that He used the Jews as a testimony to the world of who He is and of a means to be right with Him, when Jews were the authors of Scriptures and when the first people to be communicated to the Word of God were Jews, you better not forget that when you're trying to interpret the Scripture. You better not try to remove that context and disregard the Old Testament like post-millennials and replacement theologians and a lot of time charismatics do in their weird doctrines. can't do that. These things in the New Testament are built upon the foundation of the Law and the Prophets. We can't pull out the foundation and expect to be able to understand or benefit from the structure. When there's no foundation, the structure falls. Joel chapter 3. Proclaim ye this among the Gentiles. 
This is an announcement to the Gentiles. Prepare war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. I love how we quote that little (coughs) verse there as if it's appropriated for Christians in our Christian life. Let the weak say, I am strong. No, this context here is Gentiles, come on up. Come to the fight. Come to the battle. God's calling out the Gentiles. Even the weak ones. Let them say I'm strong. Let them think them to be something when they are nothing. Come up to the battle. Assemble yourselves and come all you heathen. And gather yourselves together round about. Thither cause thy mighty ones to come down. God's calling the heathen. He's calling them out. Let the heathen be wakened. And come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the heathen round about. Put ye in the sickle. For the harvest is ripe. Come get you down. For the press is full. The vats overflow. For their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon shall be darkened and the stars shall withdraw their shining. God's calling up the Gentiles to a fight. Why? Why is God calling the heathen to a fight? Why? Is it just to judge them for their wickedness? That's part of it. Verse 16, The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter His voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth shall shake but the Lord will be the hope of His people and the strength of the children of Israel. God is calling the Gentiles to a fight to judge them and to deliver His people, Israel. This fight in the valley of decision, in the valley of Jehoshaphat, also the valley of Jezreel, Har Megiddo or Armageddon, this fight is spoken of as a harvest that involves a press that is full and vats that overflow. This fight is spoken of as a vintage, the harvesting of the grapes. Now let's go to Revelation 14. Verses 14 through 16 was a harvest like the harvest of wheat. I believe that's a reference to the rapture, the Son of Man on the cloud. It says that the time for the harvest of the earth is right. He thrust in His sickle on the earth, on the surface of the earth, and the earth was reaped. It's the rapture, the harvest of the saints. Then verse 17, And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. He has a sharp sickle as well. Same words as the one by the Son of Man. And another angel came out from the altar which had power over fire and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth. Not on the earth. Into the earth. And gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, 
And blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horses' bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. Here we have the vintage harvest. Not the harvest of wheat, but the harvest of the grapes. And it's very clear here that this is a harvest or a gathering unto judgment, unto destruction, unto blood and guts. The harvest of the wheat on the earth was a harvest unto salvation. It agrees with what Jesus preached in the wheat and the tares. The wheat were gathered into His barn. The tares were gathered and bound to be burned. There is a reaping. There's a great reaping unto salvation and a great reaping unto judgment. We seem to think that the reaping is always unto good things. God's a good and merciful God and a loving God. And everybody's just got a little tiny problem called sin. And you know, just say you're sorry. God will forgive you. We forget that reaping what you sow isn't two good things only. It's to evil and destruction. How we minimize a great and almighty God by trivializing, trivializing the law of reaping and sowing. This is a harvest of the vintage. A judgment on the heathen. A judgment that will result in their destruction. And a judgment that will result in the salvation of the Jewish people. In verse 17, we'll go verse by verse. It says, another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven. We've got three angels involved in this snapshot of reaping. If you go back earlier in the chapter, the snapshot of judgment, you've got three angels involved in announcing judgment. You've got the angel that preaches the everlasting gospel. Give glory to God for the hour of His judgment has come. You've got the angel who announces the fall of Babylon, the fall of the world system. And then you've got the angel that announces the doom of the beast worshippers. Just like a man who has been indwelt with the Holy Spirit is sealed unto the day of redemption, he cannot lose that salvation cannot be lost he that receives the mark of the beast is sealed by Satan and he cannot be saved period I don't care what Tim LaHaye writes in his little novels you get the mark you're sealed to perdition it's the anti-spirit the anti-work or the anti-holy spirit but here we have three angels another grouping of three we have one that tells the son of man to reap the wheat harvest that was a, a couple verses earlier that's the first angel. This other angel um, comes out of the temple in heaven and he has a sharp sickle. It's the Son of Man that has the sharp sickle for the harvest of the saints. It's an angel, an angel of death here that has the sharp sickle for the harvest of the vintage. And then we have a third angel, verse 18, that comes out, it says, from the altar. And he tells this angel of death to gather the clusters of the vine because they are fully ripe. So we've got three angels involved here. One that told the Son of Man to reap. He did it. Now we've got one coming out of the temple. An angel of death with a, with a weapon. God's weapon, the Word of God, can save and it can destroy. It can build, it can cut. That sickle can gather unto the barn, and it can cast unto destruction. 
From the altar is an interesting phrase in verse 18. Why would this second angel come from the altar? Who is this angel? Turn back to chapter 6. This is a specific angel that's already shown himself in the book. And it's related to the fifth seal judgment. That was way back. Remember there's seven seals. The seventh seal is the seven trumpet judgments. And we'll see that the seventh trumpet is the seven vile judgments. But in Revelation 6, 9-11, through 11, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they hailed. Held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said unto them that they should rest for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. So you have the martyrs around the altar asking God to avenge their blood. Asking God to fight for them. Asking God to uh, destroy their enemies. Asking God, as David did, to break their teeth in their mouths and dash their little ones against the stones. And God's saying, wait. There's others that must be killed like as you were to bring their iniquity to full. Be patient a little while. These are the martyrs all down through the ages. From Abel all the way to the, through the church age. The martyrs around the throne. But there's others that have yet to be. It's interesting how we're going to see a sea of glass here that's churned up and full of people that aren't there in Revelation 4 and 5. In in Revelation 4 and 5, the sea of glass is calm. There's no one there. There's no one there when these martyrs are crying for vengeance. But when it's time to to execute the vengeance, there's a lot of people there. Because there's a lot that have yet to meet this fate. To fill up the iniquity of those that kill them. So here we are at the sixth seal. That's where the altar is emphasized. And then if we jump over to chapter 8, and when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. Remember we talked about that being the eye of the storm. There was at some point yesterday on the, on the southeast coast of Texas, things went calm for a few minutes. The eye of the storm. And then more destruction. Did you know the Bible says God has His way in the whirlwind and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Storms demonstrate God's way. Whether you want to hear that or not. Everybody wants, you know, most of America is going to go on droning, believing that a total eclipse of the sun, a very rare event that traveled literally coast to coast, the moment it went fully dark on the west coast of Oregon was the same moment the sun set in Jerusalem. A lot of people are going to go on drone and that a giant eclipse that went right across this, uh, this country, coast to coast, followed by a monster storm. Less than a week later, it's just a coincidence. Just a coincidence. You can go on thinking those things if you want to. God has His way in the whirlwind. And it's by His mercy that there is even an eye of the storm. Maybe we're in an eye of the storm against this country right now. Maybe that's why the election last November went the way it did. But if we don't repent, what's coming is the eye wall and the backside. This wicked country needs to repent. If storms won't do it, eclipses won't do it, if preaching won't do it, 
I fear what, has, what it takes. Maybe nothing will do it. Maybe it's America that's caught up to the vintage and has its blood splattered to the horse's bridles. Wicked country. Chapter 8. Here we have the seventh seal. There was silent in space about the, and heaven about the space of half an hour. And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. So the seven trumpet judgments are the seventh seal judgment. And came another angel and stood at the altar. So here we have an angel come and stand at the altar, the altar where all the martyrs are gathered, having a golden censer. And there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hands. So we know what the prayers of the saints are. The prayers of the martyr saints are told us back in chapter 6, Lord, when will you execute vengeance? And so there's an angel here offering incense with those prayers associated with those martyrs. And the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and cast it to the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. And the seven angels which had the seven trumps prepared themselves to sound. So an angel at the altar with the golden censer and the prayers of the saints threw or cast uh, fire from the altar to the earth that initiated the seven trumpet judgments. That's the same angel we see here that comes out and says, reap the harvest. And he's associated with the martyrs who were asking for the vengeance of God. God's saying, wait a little while. Your fellow servants must join you. Here in Revelation chapter 14, we are at a point where the fellow servants have joined them. Now it's time to answer those prayers. Now the waiting is over. With this vintage reaping, the cries of the saints to be vindicated are finally heard and it's time to act. So the angel that lifts the prayers up before the throne of God is now told, go, give the command. It's time for vengeance. This is vengeance. Vengeance for the saints. It says in uh, chapter 14 that um, this angel tells this angel of death to thrust in his sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes are fully ripe. Sometimes we think God needs to judge the wicked now. Or why won't God do something? Why won't God stop this person? Judgment is far more effective when the wickedness and iniquity of the wicked is allowed to fully ripen. We need to let the iniquity ripen then the judgment is eternal, far more effective. You don't jump the gun with justice. You don't jump the gun with blessing. God doesn't jump the gun. We want Him to avenge this now. Why won't God stop it, step in right now and stop these pedophiles from raping these little children? Well, do you realize that when God steps in, the whole play is over? There's no stepping in to save a child from a pedophile unless it's stepping in to save all that is good from all that is evil. Including your evils. When God steps in, the play's over. The director doesn't come in halfway through Act 1 and then the play continues. God never jumps the gun. 
The judgment for the pedophile will be far more effective and eternal when the director walks on the stage and the play is over. Not any time before. Turn to Genesis 15. This phrase, fully ripe, alludes back to something God says here to Abraham about why Israel would go down to Egypt and they wouldn't come out again until the fourth generation. You know, God could have built up a nation out of Abraham, settled them in the land right there, given them the promises. But there were other things involved. There was more to the story. Our problem is we can't see more to the story and we don't have the faith to trust that God knows better than we do. But God built the nation of Israel by taking them down into Egypt and into Egypt they became slaves. And it was through that slavery that one family became a nation of more than two million people. It was a place whereby they could be isolated and grow in a supernatural way. All this talk today about slavery and how terrible slavery was in American history. People whining and crying about an institution that ended 150 years ago. People whining and crying about how hard it is to walk by a statue that can't breathe, that can't speak, that can't change color, that can't move. If you have emotional distress when you, by walking near an inanimate statue, then you are a pathetic, pathetic excuse for human. I don't care what color your skin is. I'm going to tell you another thing. For black Christians in this country, there's many who love the Lord and preach the gospel and take a stand. There's many who are false, just like white Whitey. He's false most of the time. But any black Christian out there that spends his time lamenting slavery as opposed to preaching the gospel ought to repent. Ought to repent because he has no idea about the sovereign providence of God. He has no idea that through slavery God took a people, idol worshippers, out of jungles and transmigrated them to a place where they can grow into a population. And over time, the gospel of Jesus Christ would take root so that it would produce, at least for a time, a culture that really fears God and trusts God and a culture out of which some really solid God-fearing men and women have come. Is that any different? I mean, it's obviously different because it's God's chosen people, the Jews, but it's a microcosmic picture of what God did with the Jews. Are there any Jews that sit around lamenting and whining about the Exodus? No, they use it as an opportunity to declare God's victory. Now, they sit and whine about the Holocaust a lot. I'm sick and tired of that too. I'm sick and tired of Jews walking around crying about a Holocaust that didn't even involve them. If you identify yourself as a Jew today in 2017 with the Holocaust, you're just as pathetic as a black man who identifies himself with slavery when he never knew it, his mother never knew it, and his grandmother never knew it. I'm sorry, it is what it is. The Holocaust was a terrible thing. But what Jews that lament in this need to do is open their eyes and see that with the Holocaust, God did with Israel just what He did with the Exodus. And the greatest revenge against the Nazis was grandchildren. The modern state of Israel. Quit whining. But that's what they do. They whine in the desert for 40 years. And you know what? This isn't an attack on the Jews. I love the Jewish people. 
because they're beloved of God. It's also attack on us because we haven't learned. We're worse than they are because their testimonies are given to us in the Scriptures as a warning. So we've got the warning and we've got the example and we still do the same thing they do. So we are worse than they are. Whining, crying, entitlement Americans who think that because their internet goes out that they've got it real bad. Or think that because there's a statue honoring a soldier that died 150 years ago that they're in danger. Or because somebody else in America thinks that they're not as good as they are because of a different skin color that oh, they, they're in danger. What is there? 18 total KKK members left in the United States today? I mean, really, when is the last time those fools have had any influence anywhere? When they march, I don't know when the last time they ever marched around here, but nobody ever paid attention to them. Why all of a sudden is this a threat? It's a threat because Americans are spoiled brats. They don't know what suffering is. They don't know what poverty is. I had an encounter a few days ago with some people that just thought it was okay to get drunk and go to sleep right outside the door of a business in Hickory a business that also includes our dojo. And I told them they had to leave. I probably should have been a little nicer. I should have used it as an opportunity to preach the gospel. The smell of alcohol just got to me. It got to me. The fact that someone walked in the dojo and stole my Apple Watch got to me. The fact that people were peeing on the side of the building got to me. The fact that somebody defecated outside the dojo door and threw toilet paper down there got to me. The fact that cigarette butts are left there got to me. The fact that... uh, People think they can just come and do whatever they want on somebody else's property. Got to. Told them they need to leave. Don't come back. They got mad at me, cursed at me, talked about it. You don't know what it is to, to live on the streets. Maybe one day you'll find out what it is to be poor. I said, you're not poor. I said, you're just a couple of bums. You're not poor. You don't know what poverty is. You've never seen poverty. You can live on the streets here and drink clean water. You can live on the streets here and have blessings that many people around this world could only dream of. You're not poor, you're ungrateful. And I'm just sick and tired of this attitude here in America. I'm sick and tired of it. And we're worse than the Jews that identify themselves with the Holocaust. We're worse because we've got an example. We're worse than the Jews that murmured in the desert because we've got that recorded. We ought to know better. But we don't. We whine and complain. Well, that's not very loving. Love bids a warning doom to children that play in the freeway. Love recognizes that the vintage reaping is coming. A bloody affair when the blood will go to the horse's bridles. And love warns that people might escape. Love warns the black man who, I, who cries and whines about racism. Love warns the Jew who's rejected God and Messiah. And love warns wicked whitey who thinks he's better than everybody else. Who thinks he's smarter than everybody else as he always has. Love warns. In heaven, praise God, there's people of every tribe, tongue, nation, color. If you can't handle that, Maybe it's because you ain't booked a ticket to go there. In hell, 
there's people of every tribe, tongue, nation, and color. In hell, it's just not the white man in hell, friends. A lot of wicked blacks, Jews, Jews go to hell. This idea that just because you're a Jew, you're saved, the Bible never teaches that. Those that believe God and has a plan and a purpose for Israel, those who believe in biblical dispensation have never taught that, even though we're accused of that by replacement theologians who couldn't be trusted to exegete John 19.35. Jesus wept. They can't handle the Scriptures. I wouldn't trust them to preach on John 19.35. Jews go to hell. All Muslims who follow the teachings of Muhammad go to hell. There's only one way a Muslim can escape hell is to forsake his religion. I'm sorry, it's just the truth. I'm not going to apologize for it. People go to hell of every tribe, tongue, nation, and color. Praise God, around the throne are also people of every tribe, tongue, nation, and color. There is no place for racism in the church. There is no place for discrimination in the church. We really shouldn't be. It's the church that ought to be diverse. The diversity of the church is supposed to be the testimony, not the diversity of the workplace where people aren't qualified. The diversity of the church... People of every color is to be the testimony to the world that the gospel saves people from every corner and the gospel saves from every religion. Religion is discriminatory. It's sad that we're that way. I didn't mean to get off on that topic, but if we can't preach or see or address the the, the issues of the day here and now, then what are we preaching for? Genesis 15. Wow. Okay. Thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Verse 15, God says to Abraham, Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall come hither again. So God tells Abraham that He would make of him a people and they would be sojourners. Now Israel was not in slavery for 400 years. That's not what it's saying. They were sojourners for 400 years. They were actually in Egypt for about 215. But remember... When, when Isaac was born and he was weaned, what happened at that weaning to Isaac? He was mocked. It was at that moment that, it, that the descendants of Abraham began being persecuted and were sojourning. Abraham had a couple of little pieces of land. He bought that piece of land. He built an altar up near, uh, I think it was Bethel, and he, he bought the cave to bury his dead. They were sojourners. Isaac had to move around all the time. But God said He would send them down, and then in the fourth generation, He would bring them out. And why would He wait until the fourth generation? Well, one of the reasons was to build up the nation. There's another reason. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. The Amorites were the Canaanites. And God purposed to raise up Israel and use them to destroy the wicked people of Canaan. But not before their iniquity was fully right. God sees all and God waits. Because when the director steps on the stage, it's over. And when God judges sin, He judges sin that's fully ripe. He doesn't pick the grapes when they're not ripe. He doesn't pick the apples when they're sour and small. He waits until they're full and sweet. And then He casts it into the back. The iniquity of the Amorites was ripe when Joshua and the people of Israel came into the land. Oh, it's so terrible. You know, God's, God just destroyed people. and You know, God's just a vengeful, genocidal God. Well, God is a genocidal God. Amen. 
That's what atheists and wicked liberals say, that the Old Testament is a book of genocide. Amen. God wipes out wicked people. And God who created all things and who has all power can decide which people He wants to use and which people He doesn't. He can decide to raise people up for honor and raise others like Pharaoh up to dishonor. Who are you, the one created, to say to the one who created you, why have you made me this? Put your hand over your mouth. That's what Paul says in Romans 9. We have such a small view of God and His authority. We want to make Him big and accept Him, but we want to throw His authority out. God brought genocide upon a wicked people. But He was not unmerciful to save those who feared Him and trusted Him and had faith. And He did that right there in Jericho with Rahab and her family. She, was, had, she had fear and faith. And God rescued her. Not only rescued her, but her she, she became a part of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. God doesn't destroy people who are humble and repent. They don't get swept up. The problem is people don't humble themselves and repent. The Canaanites were wicked, wicked people. And when their iniquity was full, God used Israel to destroy them. God does exactly what He says He's going to do. Whether you like it or not. God doesn't need your approval for anything. doesn't need my approval. But here the grapes are fully ripe. It's time to judge the world. Why would we want God to come and judge the wicked if the sin wasn't fully ripe and He wasn't able to judge all wickedness? It's better to judge all wickedness at once than a little bit at a time. God knows that. The harvest is cast... I'm just going to try to get through the end of chapter 14 today. It says here in chapter 14, uh, verse 16, and he, oh, I'm sorry, that's a little before. Verse 19, the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth. It's kind of interesting that the first angel thrust his sickle uh, uh, on the earth like a wheat harvest. He, thr- he, he harvests the wheat, the grains of the wheat. This angel thrust his sickle into the earth to root it up and cast it. There's two different reapings here. Two different reapings. And cast it, the vine, and gathered the vine of the earth. He's not just grab, gad, gathering the grapes here. He's not picking the grapes. He's ca- throwing that sickle into the earth and he's ripping up the plants. He's ripping up the vine with the grapes. He's tearing it out of the ground, uprooting it and throwing it in the vat. And cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. This is a type, or this is the anti-type of something that happened in history regarding Israel. Remember Joel? This vintage is a destruction, an invitation to the heathen to destroy them and thereby to save Israel. This, there's a type of this in the book of Lamentations. We have actually, in our study of Revelation this far, we have cross-referenced every single book of the Bible. This isn't the first time we've been in Lamentations. We've been there before, but I believe Lamentations was the last one uh, of all the books of the Bible we cross-referenced, but that was some time ago. Turn to Lamentations right after the book of Jeremiah. Lamentations 1, 
15 through 18. This is Jeremiah's observation of what God has done here to Israel with the Babylonian captivity. The Lord hath trodden underfoot all my mighty men in the midst of me. Lamentations 1.15 He hath called an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord hath trodden the virgin, the daughter of Judah, as in a winepress. For these things I weep, my eye, mine eye runneth down with water, because the comforter that should relieve my soul is far from me. My children are desolate, because the enemy prevailed. Zion spreadeth forth her hands, and there is none to comfort her. The Lord hath commanded concerning Jacob, that his adversaries should be round about him. Jerusalem is as a menstruous woman among them. The Lord is righteous, for I have rebelled against His commandments. Here I pray you all people and behold my sorrow. My virgins and my young men are gone into captivity. Verses 20 and 21. Or 21 22. They have heard that I sigh. There is none to comfort me. All mine enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that thou hast done it. Thou wilt bring the day that thou hast called... And they shall be like unto me. Let all their wickedness come before thee, and do unto them as thou hast done unto me for all my transgressions. For my sighs are many, and my heart is faint. Here we have a vintage, a wine press of wrath that falls upon the Jewish people. No one was there to comfort them. And then Jeremiah prays that one day this wrath will come upon those who have done unto him and his people. This is a type of what's happening at this vintage. The nations are gathered against Jerusalem. There's no one there to help them. They've been driven. Everything they've built in the modern state's been taken away. There's a small remnant left. There's none to help them. But unlike here, Jesus Christ steps in. And the wickedness that's been brought against Israel is then turned on those that have brought it against them. And as here is a wine press, a vintage of God's wrath, so there. So we have a type of this in the book of Lamentations. It alludes back to what the prophet says. It's a, there's a contrast with the Babylonian captivity. God scattered Israel and He brought them back. At the end, He'll scatter and destroy, but He'll bring them back. It's all been foreshadowed. The book of Revelation doesn't stand on its own. But unlike the captivity, something has to happen before God can step in to redeem Israel from her enemies. Something has to happen. Turn to Hosea. Now remember, the church is told, the church, Jew and Gentile, is told to be ready at any moment, to have our wicks trimmed and our lamps full of oil. Be ready at any moment. He will come as a thief. It could happen at any moment. Hosea 5.15, this is Messiah speaking. I will go and return to my place. Messiah will come, go to the people, become a man, but then he'll go back. Where did he go back to? Right back to his place, the right hand of God. How long is he going to stay there? It says, until they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me early. It's talking about the house of Israel and the house of Judah, the Jewish people. The book of prophet Hosea was a prophet 
primarily against the northern kingdom. Messiah would come. He wouldn't be recognized. He'll return home. And he's going to stay there until his people acknowledge their offense. What's the great offense of the Jewish people? They rejected their Messiah. And until the nation recognizes that sin and calls for him, he, can't, he will not come back. So Israel has to wake up and call for him before he comes and stomps out the vintage. So obviously when we're told to be ready at any moment for the coming of the Lord in the air, that coming in the air is something other than that coming and putting one's foot on the Mount of Olives. We're not going to be called up into the air and make a U-turn and come right back to earth. We shouldn't be looking for Antichrist. We're looking for Christ to come and take His people. But Jesus won't come and put His foot on the Mount of Olives. We know there's a time period. We know it's been written. A seven-year period, a 70th week. But at the end of that, Israel pushed to her utter end. Just like is here in Lamentations. Just like here in the city where the wine press is trodden. Will call for him and he'll come and redeem them. And his clothes will be bloody, splattered with blood. It's interesting because in Isaiah 5, the prophet refers in a parable about God's vineyard to Israel. Israel and Judah are God's vineyard. And God planted it and dressed it and treated it and nourished it. And instead of bringing forth grapes, it brought forth wild grapes. So what did he do? He tore it down. He destroyed it. He judged it. A picture of what um, uh, it, it, God's people. And He judged them. Verse 7, chapter 5, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah His pleasant plant. And He looked for judgment, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, behold, a cry. The vineyard is located in the land of Israel. The judgment comes there. Verse 19 of chapter 14 says, Gathered and cast, thrust in his sickle, the first harvest, on the earth, versus thrust in his sickle into the earth with his vintage, gathered and cast. That word for cast in the original language connotes violence and intensity. Thrust, the words thrust and cast come from the same word, violently. This is a violent thing. The thrusting and the casting into the great winepress of the wrath of God is violent. Those that love violence get violence here. Where? There's two questions we've got to ask. Where is the vintage cast? And who is it that trods it once it's cast? It's cast in the winepress. Where is this winepress? And who is it that trods the grapes? Two questions. Where? It says in verse 20, And the winepress was trodden without the city. Obviously, the city here is Jerusalem. When we contrast this with where the 144,000 are at the beginning of the chapter, Mount Zion. When we contrast this with the parable of the vineyard in Isaiah 5, with Joel chapter 3. The winepress is without the city, outside the city of Jerusalem. The whole land of Palestine. 
Without the without the city and blood came out of the winepress even unto the horse's bridles. The level of a horse's bridle is about, about here, I guess. I don't know. Whatever that means indicates a very liberal splattering of blood. When God's wrath is poured out, it's a bloody affair. You know, we tend to glamorize the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. It was a bloody affair. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. What Christ did on the cross was a bloody affair. It wasn't meek and Je- meek, Jesus gentle, meek and mild, hanging there and just looking with a smile and a little hole in His hand. It's a bloody affair. He was so marred, His visage was so marred, they couldn't even tell He was a man. God's judgment upon sin is a bloody affair. Praise God that He judged sin on Jesus. And it was a bloody affair so that we could escape this bloody affair. God must punish sin. God can never forgive sin without punishing it. You either allow your sin to be punished on Jesus Christ, marred beyond the visage of any man, or you'll pay for it yourself. You'll be punished yourself. Praise God, Jesus took my punishment. And because He was 100% God and 100% man, He could step in my place and He could suffer a bloody, eternal wrath in a moment of time and survive. God and man. Praise God. 1,600 furlongs. Even unto the horse's bridles by the space of 1,600 furlongs. That's about 200 miles in the old way of counting. The whole of Palestine and beyond, 200 miles in every direction without the city. A radius of 200 miles going out of Jerusalem. A bloody mess. The crossroads of the ancient Near East was the land of Israel. The crossroads today between Europe, Asia, and Africa is the land of Israel. It'll be the cross, it was the crossroads of the old times, it's the crossroads of the future times. And it's the site of the final battle. It's the site where God initiates judgment against all men. In chapter 16, verse 16, it says, and He gathered them together. This is a gathering in chapter 14. When we get into chapter 15, 16, 17 and beyond, we get the details of the campaign, what it looks like. He gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. Now, it's funny, when you go to the site of Megiddo, the old site where Solomon had an outpost there on the edge of the valley of Jezreel, there's a sign, when you walk in there, it's, it's, an Israel, it's a national park site in Israel, and in Hebrew it says, Har Megiddo, Tel Megiddo. And when they put it in English, it says Har Megiddo. Well, Har Megiddo is a transliteration of the Hebrew into English. Armageddon is a translation of the Hebrew into Greek and then transliterated into English. Armageddon is Har Megiddo. Har Megiddo is Tel Megiddo. We're told exactly where God gathers them. Exactly where He gathers them. A big valley. It's a sobering place. It's about 60 miles north of Jerusalem. And if you look at the way armies would march and come down from Asia and Europe, that's the way they went. Right through that valley. They come up out of the Jordan Valley, cut across the Jezreel Valley and come down the sea. 
and, and then can get up to Jerusalem that way. Because the north of Jerusalem is hills. Armageddon, Armageddon. Where? Outside the city. The epicenter, ground zero, about 60 miles north, the entrance to the valley of Jezreel. Who? We know who thrust in the sickle, but who treads the grapes? And the winepress was trodden. Well, who treads it? The angel thrust in his sickle. We know where the winepress is, but who's treading it? Who's, who's doing the, the dirty work, the bloody job? Let's look at a couple passages of Scripture and we'll end. I'm going to let some other people read. My voice is dry. Brother Gene, Revelation 19, 11 through 15. Brother Daniel, Isaiah 63, 1 through 6. And uh, let's see, Eric, Isaiah 34, 1 through 8. So who is treading this wine press? We don't get a lot of details in chapter 14. It's a summary statement. We're summarizing two gatherings that sandwich Jacob's trouble. That sandwich the 70th week. Go a little further in Revelation, we get the details. 19, 11 through 15. This one who comes out of heaven looks very similar to what John sees in chapter 1 when Jesus appears on behalf of the church in the candlesticks. This one that comes out of heaven is quite different than he who hung on the cross in his appearance. This one who comes out of heaven, faithful and true, the Word of God is undoubtedly the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does he do? He treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. The one who treads is Christ, the Messiah. Who follows in the armies which are in heaven? I don't want to get too much in this passage. We'll exegete it later. The armies are clothed in fine linen, white and clean. We're told otherwise, other, in another place in the book that the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Not only do the saints hear their prayers answered and watch God's vengeance, they get to take part in it, in executing it. They get to follow Him and be a part of it. I praise God for that. I've been training for a fight for 25 years. I hope I didn't waste all that time. I don't want to fight unless I can fight wickedness in the Spirit and with Jesus marching ahead of me. So, no reason to fight right now. His kingdom is not of flesh and blood. His servants don't fight in this dispensation unless we have to defend our family. And those that can't defend themselves. We fight for defense, not for revolution. What this is, is a revolution. Jesus told Peter and his disciples, told him that he that has a sword, get one and bring it with you when they were going to the garden. 
They said, Lord, we have two swords. He said, that's enough. It was enough to defend themselves so they could escape. But it wasn't enough to start a revolution and make Jesus king. There's a lesson there. Jesus, in that moment, protected his disciples. He made sure that they were not captured. His fate was for him alone. And he told them, take two swords. That's enough to defend yourself. Jesus healed the the, the servant of the high priest. Because if he hadn't done that, Peter would have probably been crucified with him or he would have, they'd, have, they'd have killed him right there. So Jesus was looking out for Peter when he did that as well. But we're not here to start a revolution. That comes later. And we, that comes when we follow the general. He's gonna, we're going we're gonna to get to be participating. I don't want to exegete this passage, but it's undoubtable that it's Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, who treads the wine press. Isaiah 63. Who is this that comes from Edom with dyed garments? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the winefat? I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in my anger, and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. And I looked, and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore, mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury it upheld me. And I will tread down the people in mine anger, and make them drunk in my fury. And I will bring down their strength to the earth. Okay, this is one who comes out of Edom, out of Basra, out of the south. Because the year of his redeemed has come. The redeemed here is Israel. It's time to redeem that. He comes along, his garments are splattered in blood. I took us to this passage a little earlier in the book of Revelation. When we were talking about chapter 12. What happens when the woman... Her seed is called up to heaven, or, or the man-child is called up to heaven. I believe that's also a picture, that's a picture of Christ, but also the church. And then the woman is persecuted, and she flees. And she flees to a place that God has prepared to protect His people, just like the land of Goshen was a place to protect them so they could uh, be built up. And we talked about where that's located. And that's funny that Messiah, who treads the winepress, comes out of that place where Israel is being protected. So we've talked about this before, but in the land of Basra, and it, uh, I mean, a garment spattered with blood, a man wearing a garment spattered with blood comes from Edom and Basra in the south to tread the wine press. This is Mashiach, Messiah. He's the one that treads. He treads for vengeance, and he treads to redeem the people of Israel. Remember I told you the tribulation serves two purposes. To judge the wicked and to bring Israel to a place of repentance. That's why it's called the time of Jacob's trouble in the book of Jeremiah. And when she repents, there is one who will fight for her just like they did, he did at the Red Sea. Stand still and I will fight for you. And when he does, it's bloody. Isaiah 34, 1 through 8. Come here, you nations, to hear and hearten the people. Let the earth hear and all that is for the indignation of the Lord is upon all nations, 
fury upon all their armies. He had utterly destroyed them. He had delivered them to the slaughter. Their slain also shall be cast out, and their stink shall come up out of their carcasses, and the mountains shall be melted with their blood. And all the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll, and all their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falleth off from the vine, and as a fallen fig from the fig tree. For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Behold, it shall come down from Idumea, and upon the people of my curse to judgment. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is made fat with fatness, and with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord hath made a sacrifice in Babylon, and a great slaughter in the land of Idumea. And the unicorns shall come down with them, and the bullocks with the bulls. And their land shall be soaked with blood, and their dust made fat with fatness. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance, and the year of recompenses for the controversy of Zion. These things in Revelation are just commentary on what's already been written in the book of Isaiah. It's almost a carbon copy. If the Holy Spirit wants to write commentary on what He's already said, He's free to do so. We need to be careful when we do that. But He's free to do so. Here we have a very bloody affair involving Messiah comes from Idumea. Idumea was the Roman name for the area of Edom and Basra. It's funny how that word appears in the book of Isaiah 700 years before Christ. I'm kind of curious about that. That was a Greek and Roman name that came later. And Isaiah was before the Greek times. Why is he using a word? That's almost prophetic. How could he have known that? I mean, I'd have to look at the Hebrew word, but it's an interesting translation there. Maybe it's the same word that's used for Basra. I don't want to jump the gun. I do know the prophet Amos praises God for the constellations, one of which is the seven sisters. Uh, the seven sisters, it's translated that way in Hebrew. We call it the Pleiades. The Pleiades is that constellation of stars you can look at in the night heavens. But here's a strange thing. Isaiah, Amos is writing long before Christ, and he calls it the seven sisters. The naked eye can only see six of those stars. The seventh wasn't discovered until after the telescope. So how did the prophet know that unless God revealed it to him? The Bible is a scientific book. It's a very scientific book. In fact, when the Bible refers to unicorns like it does here, it's a scientific book. It's not a fairy tale. A unicorn's not a horse with a horn. It's a rhinoceros. Go look at the scientific name for a rhinoceros. The Latin words. Go look it up, Go look it up sometime. And then you'll know exactly what a unicorn is. The Bible's just using the scientific name. Unicornus. Very interesting. People think they know everything. They don't know anything. The land of Basra and Idumea in the south. Look at what's called blood unto the horse's bridles. Here is mountains melted with blood. A sword bathed in blood. Animals drunk with blood. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance and the year of recompenses. What is he paying back? Recompenses for what? For the controversy of Zion. All of these nations, all these anti-Semites, all of these people who hate the Jewish people and hate God's plan and purpose for them, many of them are the same people that hate the church. There's a day coming when it's all going to be paid back. And what happens here in this bloody affair is Israel is redeemed, and all the nations that have come against her, the God of Israel comes against them. 
the controversy of Zion, the age-old controversy that is spared, spread across human history. A spark. Why is it that nations on the far corner of the globe, some of whom have nothing to do with Israel, no trade, Jewish people never come there, and yet they hate Israel. Israel's a flashpoint. They want people to let the land be for the Palestinians. You know, I think of a place like the Falkland Islands down off the coast of South America. The Argentinians call them the Mal- Malvinas. Las Malvinos. Son Argentinas. The Malvinas are Argentinas land. Well, they talk a big talk. Back in the 80s, they thought, you know, this is our islands. We're going to take them from the British. The Falkland Wars. And that was back when the British had a real prime minister. A woman named Margaret Thatcher. And she said, uh, no. And sent the British Navy. And the war didn't last very long. And the Argentines have only talked since then. The people on the island said, we want to be British. And they think, well, we'll we'll just... I don't care about the Malvinas. I could care less living in America, whether it's Argentine or British. I care less. Doesn't affect me. It has nothing to do with me. But not so with Israel. You can go to Ladakh, a place in India, where it has nothing to do with Israel other than Israelis come there to travel in the mountains. But Muslims living in Ladakh, why would they care anything about that? Yet they're having a protest against Israel. An anti-Israeli, anti-Israel protest on the streets of Ladakh, marching down the street. Why? Because the controversy of Zion is a fact, and it proves the Bible to be true. It's a spark in the haystack, and we see that even today. It's proof that these things are true and these things are coming. What's the point in reading all these verses? The point is, Jesus Christ is coming back soon, and He is full of rage. I used to have a bumper sticker on our RV as we traveled across the country preaching the gospel back in the days when Full Proof started. It said, Jesus Christ is coming back soon, and boy, is He mad. Now, there's another way to say that, but I'm in a pulpit. I'm not going to say it. Another English way to translate it. Jesus is coming back and He is mad. Repent. God Almighty is a great storm. Jesus Christ is a furious, raging storm. Far more furious and vicious than this Hurricane Harvey. Harvey's such a stupid name. You shouldn't put that with a violent, raging storm. What was the big one that hit down there years ago? Not Katrina, I'm thinking way back. No, Texas. Well, there were some names back in the day that were good. This stuff today is kind of cheesy. Harvey just doesn't sound like a mad individual. That storm is mad. God's a raging storm. Jesus Christ is a raging storm. But you know what the prophet Nahum tells us? He's also the shelter from the storm. He's also the shelter from this storm. Repent and be made right with Him so you can escape this storm. Praise God, Israel. He will not make a full end out of Israel. won't make a full end out of them. He'll save them. He'll redeem those that humble themselves and cry for Him. He will fulfill His promise to the nation of Israel. We need to do everything in our power today to sow seeds 
of the Bible and the truth with the people of Israel. The printed word. Because the digital word that we all trust in can be flipped off like a light switch. You better cherish your printed Bible. Because the powers that be could flip every reference to it on the internet off in an instant. If you don't think so, you're blind. you got your head in the sand. we got Bibles on our shelves that are not being used. That we could put in the hands of people. So that once the church is taken and the Holy Spirit is witness with it, there's at least something left where people can find the truth. Because you think the media is fake and bad today? Wait till the media machine of Antichrist and the false prophet comes. You won't even be able to find an alternative. There won't be a talk radio program. There won't be an Infowars.com. There won't be a MichaelSavage.com. There won't be any of that. This will be all that's left. Tattered. Dusty. Torn. The more we can get out today. Let's don't leave this earth with the trumpet sound, with Bibles sitting on our shelves. Let's get them out. One of the things we want to do with our ministry going forward is make a way whereby people can get to us their Bibles that they're not using. And we will get them into the hands of others who have them not. If they're King James Bibles, we'll put them in their hands. If there's something else, we can can use it. We'll leave it somewhere where it can be found. Every translation has enough truth to shed light on who God is. I just don't like to go into battle with a butter knife when I can use a glittering double-edged 66 caliber broadsword it's just me but if you have Bibles we want to get them out that's what the coal porters did during the civil war did you know that the Baptist coal porters board doesn't exist anymore Southern Baptists thought they had better ways than the printed word better strategies there are no more coal porters just like there's no more circuit riders we think we have better ways But the work that the coal porters did during the Civil War, particularly in the South, was amazing. Did you know that all the printing presses, in 1860, almost all the printing presses were in the North. And so when the war broke out between the states, Southern people couldn't get printed material they took for granted. Bibles included. Praise God there were some godly people in the North, brothers and sisters in Christ, who made efforts to get Bibles to people in the South. People in the South had to, Bibles had to be, the coal porters a lot of times had to get Bibles from England. And they were smuggled through the Yankee blockade. The Baptist Coal Portage Board in the South was able to secure help from some societies in London who allowed them to have unlimited credit to purchase Bibles from England. And they would settle and worry about the debt later to get them into the South. They were, when the, when the Yankee ships caught these uh, blockade runners... A lot of times the Bibles were taken and distributed around the north for people to keep as souvenirs. And they weren't, they weren't able to be used, but a lot did get through. I've seen old pictures of wagons taken into the camp, Bibles given out. And southern people who had precious Bibles were willing to give them to this work so that some poor soldier who didn't have the Bible could get it before he went to meet his maker. He could know the truth. There were stories of mothers who had their sons killed. And the Bible that their son killed was sent back to the mother. And the mother said, I don't want to hang on to this. I want to make sure someone else has it. And would donate those Bibles. It's amazing work. 
If the South was so wicked and the Southern people were so heinous and racist, why was it in the South, in the Confederate armies, that God wrought a great revival during the Civil War? Some say 150 to 200,000 people came to Christ. There were other revivals that took place in the northern camps as well, but the majority was in the South. People say they don't know what they're talking about. I mean, why would we expect anybody on a college campus to know what they're talking about, about statues in the Civil War, when they don't know what they're talking about, about basic arithmetic, basic science, or anything else? They don't know anything. A college degree is not a badge of honor anymore. It's a badge of disgrace. It means you're a brainwashed sheep. That's just my opinion. One man's opinion. If you've got a college degree, that tells me, and I have a college degree. I've got a master's degree. I never got a doctorate degree because it serves no purpose. I could do it without even studying. I've already written things in my life that would pass off as a doctoral dissertation. It's a formality. Would take very little effort on my part. But it's not a badge of honor. It's a badge of disgrace. It's a badge of being brainwashed by a system that lies about everything. The temples of the Antichrist religion in this country are in two places. They're on the college campuses and they're in the sports stadiums. In the sports stadiums, the temple has them all distracted. In the college temples, he has them all brainwashed. That's why you won't have the people of this country raise up against this indifferent wickedness and corruption in our government. You won't have people raise up and say enough's enough like they did in other times because they're worshiping at the temples of Antichrist. They're distracted, distracted in the stadiums on Sunday afternoon and they're brainwashed in the classrooms Monday through Friday. Wake up. Let's just call it what it is. Let's be like Elijah. Let's look at the world system and let's mock it. Like he mocked the prophets of Baal. What's wrong with your God? What's he doing? Is he on a journey? Is he sleeping? Is he going to the bathroom? Why can't he hear you? Let's just call it what it is. That's the best form of revenge anyway. Call it exactly what it is. But, not, but don't call it what it is without giving people the truth. Without loving them enough. Mock foolishness. I'm not talking about making a mock at sin. The Bible says not to do that. We mock at sin by doing it and making light of it. We never make light of it, but we call it what it is. We call the Catholic Church what it is, a filthy, wicked death cult. We call it what it is. But we also communicate the truth and love people enough to respond to their humility, respond to their inquisitions, inquiries. Jesus Christ is coming back, and boy, is He mad. I want to I conclude with just a couple passages from the New Testament to encourage you. I did not fulfill my promise today, but I'll probably be able to do it next week. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 Wrathful God, bloody affair, vengeance, the wine press, sobering, solemn, fearful, Maybe some children in here are afraid. But remember, friends, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. These things are here to warn the wicked. These things are here to spur us to warn the wicked. But they're not written for us. For us that are saved. If you're not saved, you need to get saved. Because those who are saved are not appointed to the wrath we have just read about but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ. 
When God saves, He keeps you saved. It's not a hope so salvation you can lose today. A lot of people that are Christians get into sin, they get caught, and then they gotta kinda they gotta kinda excuse it by all of a sudden deciding that they weren't saved and they need to get saved. That gets on my every last nerve. I can't stand that. When people sometimes people are lost, but to get into bondage of sin, and then all of a sudden, well, I'm not saved, it's, and I get saved, well, that's a way to excuse it where the people you sin against are concerned. I've had people do terrible things and I've made sure they understood that this it, don't, don't be giving me some excuse that you're not saved. We all know you're saved. We've seen the fruit. You just need to repent and acknowledge it. Those that are saved are not appointed to wrath. God will judge us and chastise us if we fall into sin, but we're not appointed to wrath. Titus 2.13 Therefore, because we're not appointed to wrath, we can read about things, these things, we can study these things, we can warn the wicked about these things. But as far as what we're waiting and watching for, it's not these things. We need to wait and watch for what Paul says here in Titus 2 verse 13. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. These things speak, exhort. There must be a mistake here. Rebuke? Paul tells Titus to rebuke people? I guess so. With all authority, let no man despise thee. We're to be looking for the blessed hope. The appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. That appearing in the clouds. The angel that tells the Son of Man to go reap the wheat harvest is the same angel that blows the trumpet. The archangel. The dead in Christ shall rise and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them into the clouds. So shall we ever be with the Lord. That's what we're looking for. But as we watch and wait, part of waiting and looking for that is warning others about the day of wrath and making sure we can get the Word of God, as many copies of the Word of God out so that they're here as a witness once we're gone. It's just one man's opinion. Let the Word of God be true. Let every other man be a liar. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this Word. May it motivate us, Lord, to be about Your work. Thank You for the comfort we have in knowing that we've obtained salvation from wrath. Not that we deserve it, but because You're a good God and You purpose to save a people. Lord, uh, may we not be those that try to do Your job for You, that try to execute vengeance. Vengeance is Yours. Why would we steal Your glory? We're not here to fight, start a revolution. We're not here to protest. We're here to declare the truth. And in a day when... Truth is falling in the streets. Just declaring the truth really is revolutionary. So may we be those people. May we love people enough to tell them blunt truth and give them the answers they need. Get the Word of God in their hands. Lord, our, our nation is falling apart. You've sent judgment. You've sent warning after warning. Nobody's listening. Have mercy upon us, Lord. Have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon those people in Texas, Lord. Some have already died. There's flooding, destruction. We don't rejoice in those things. 
but we do pause and consider that you are a vengeful God and that you have your way in the storm. Have mercy on the believers down there, Lord. Use them. May there be an opportunity to declare the gospel. I pray you protect them and their homes. Be a shelter to them because you're a mighty storm and a shelter from the storm at the same time. Have mercy upon this country. Have mercy upon the people of Israel. We know what's coming for them. May we do everything in our power to reach them with the gospel before that dreadful time of Jacob's trouble. But we praise God that the end of the matter is that you will redeem your people. You'll redeem your people. You'll set up a kingdom. You'll sit on the throne of David. And Israel will endure according to the promises. The saints will endure according to the promises. Bless the food this morning, Lord, our fellowship. I know the hour is long, but it's nice to rest in the gathering of the saints and not have to be somewhere else. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.